Good morning. All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That is the beginning. No confusion there. Glad to have you with us. We are uh, in the second week of a three-part series on generosity, looking at how God calls us to be generous with every part of our lives. And so, really, this idea of generosity is all kind of tied up in the, a proper response to God's presence in our lives. Generosity is actually something that goes hand in hand with being rightly related to God and others. And so last week we kicked off the series looking at how God calls us to be generous with our stuff, right? with the things that God gives us. And so the Spirit of God empowers us to live with radical generosity with our things and with our, with our stuff and helps us overcome some of the roadblocks there. And so we looked last week at the roadblocks of ignorance or entitlement or idolatry where we make our stuff ultimate in our lives. And so um, that is a key part of God unleashing generosity in our life. And that's motivated by God's generous love for us. And so we remember, too, we learned last week that Generosity means helping people, not just giving out handouts. And sometimes those look very different. And so next week we'll have a story about how generosity is, has moved among some of you. And so pretty excited about that. Anyways, we would be mistaken, however, if we reduced generosity down to what we do with our things, right? If, if we made generosity just about money or stuff, we would be missing the bigger picture of generosity. And God actually calls us to relate to every resource he gives us with this posture of generosity, right? And so generosity is this Christ-like virtue or characteristic where we are willing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage someone else, oftentimes someone more vulnerable than ourselves. And so that's really kind of what generosity is and does. And so we're going to take a look at how God calls us to be generous with our words. So, I don't know about you, but I have had those moments, and I'm sure you have as well, where you just felt like, if I could get back in my DeLorean, punch in the numbers, and go back in time, and stop myself from saying that, I'd give anything for it, right? And you'd think, ah, I wish I hadn't have said that. Where the words have come out, and... You just can't put them back. That awful feeling where it's like, you know, toothpaste. If you ever like squeeze out toothpaste and you squeeze out more than you should. Have you ever tried to get toothpaste back in the tube? It is an exercise in futility, correct? Like you cannot do it. And it is like that with words. When we say things, they're out and they don't go back. And so um, maybe you've had that moment where you think, oh, I I wish I could go back. Our words have lasting effects. Or maybe you've had the opposite experience where, uh, where a moment has passed by and you feel like, I wish I would have said something. I wish I would have spoken that word. I wish I would have told them I loved them or that I forgive them. Or, and that moment passes you by and it's like you missed a flight. You know, like you see your plane taxi down the runway. It is gone. That moment has passed by. And so, Maybe you've had that experience too, right? And the reality is our words have enormous power to shape not only our own lives, but to shape others as well. Do you actually recognize that your words have 
lasting power? That your words are a significant resource? How are they resources? Our words are resources for our relationships, right? We're able to communicate meaning and our feelings. We're able to affirm people, to communicate respect and affirmation, right? I I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if somebody hadn't communicated respect and affirmation for what God was doing in my life. I wouldn't, right? All kinds of ways that words become a resource for relationships. What about work? Uh, Words are powerful resources to create and to bring new realities into the world that change the world. Think of the power of of words to change things. I mean, imagine if Martin Luther King hadn't given his I Have a Dream speech, right? This amazing creative power to bring reconciliation and vision for a better world. Words are creative and they have power in our work. Or or words are an incredible resource for our play. I mean, think about all the things you laugh at that are because of words, right? We have humor and joy oftentimes because of words, what, uh, music and poetry and sharing. And so our words need to be stewarded like a resource, like any other resource. They're so powerful and they have to be used carefully. They're also powerful, which means that they need to be sown generously in order to make a difference. Um, understanding how to be generous with our words, though, requires an understanding of what words do. And to understand this, in order to understand what words do, we have to go back to the beginning of Scripture to learn what God does with words. So, Genesis chapter 11, our words have, or it's not 11, sorry, that's also about words. Um, if you know your Bibles, you know that's all about the confusion of words. So, anyways, we're not going to 11 today, we're going to 1. Genesis chapter 1, God says... In the beginning, or uh, the author of Genesis says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day. And darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And so, right off the bat, we recognize that God and His Word has creative power to bring realities into existence. And not only to bring things into existence that weren't there before, but to set up relationships between those realities. There's evening, and there's morning, and they relate together. And so God, from the beginning, uses His words to create and to make reality and to set up relationships within reality. But then you fast forward to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and God transfers his creative speaking power to humans. Right? He makes people in his image, and then it says this in 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And so God has transferred this naming and speaking power, this creative power to people. Right? And so humans are meant to use their words to partner with God, to help Him order the world according to His purposes. Our words 
have God-given power. And you and I might not have the power to name things like slugs or sloths. Like, that, that's, that season has passed. I mean, you can make up a new name for them if you want. But we do have power to name, don't we? I mean, you idiot. Right? I mean, you are a child of God. You, I love, I forgive. Right? And what do we do with our words? We're creating, we're naming, we're making things a reality with words. And, uh, and in fact, each time we communicate with our words, we're either unleashing God's power to order the world according to his purpose, or we're releasing our power to disorder his world for our purpose. And so our words actually do things. They are powerful. They do shape reality. Um, I'm a big nerd, and so I really like, um, like, just, I like theories about language and how things work. And so, anybody in the room ever heard of speech act theory? Do we have any? Okay, I didn't think so. I'm still the only guy. All right, so, this, this, there's this theory about language, and it's actually, I mean, this is true, that, that language kind of has three parts when we speak. There's the, the, the part that is the content. So if I say fire, right, there's content. That's the word that I speak. And then the second part is what am I doing with that word, right? And so if I say fire, I could be warning you or I could be commanding you to shoot your gun, right? So there is a, there is a power, a force of the word. So the content, what I'm doing, and then there's an intended result, Right? And so that's the third part. So it could be, I want you to get out of the burning house, or it could mean I want somebody to drop dead. Right? And so I'm a pastor. I'm warning you to get out of the house. Uh, right? so, and, and so, ever been in a fight and you, you go, I didn't mean it that way. Right? What, you're, what you're really saying is you're misunderstanding my illocutionary act. Uh, and that I actually have this perlocutionary act where I wanted you to be encouraged. And okay, see, this is where speech act theory gets all nerdy on you. Okay, right? But what what happens when you have a misunderstanding? You're saying, no, I intended this with this content, but you understood that content to be doing something very differently, right? And so we end up having to communicate and work through it. Okay, so words do things, correct? Words have intended results. And so you can do things with words. You can make reality with them. And when I stand up between two people and say, right, after they say I do and I say you are now husband and wife, what have I done? I have created a reality. They have entered into a reality with their covenant words. And so, on one hand, they were two individual people, and the next second, they were bonded forever together in a covenant union through the power of words. Or when I say to someone, you're fired, I end a reality for them, right? And create a new one. So words do things. And so scripture speaks to the power of what our words do. And we're just going to do a quick tour through some of the wisdom literature that tells us what words do. So let's just begin with Psalm 37, 30. Psalm 37, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. So a righteous person, that is someone who's rightly related to God, others, self, and creation, a righteous person is someone whose words 
are wise. They utter wisdom. And the funny thing that the psalmist does is he puts wisdom and justice in parallel, uh, in a parallel relationship. And so a righteous person utters wise words, but wise words are synonymous with doing justice in the world. And so we have the creative spoken power to make the world more just, to bring about more right relationships, to bring the world into the kind of relation that it's supposed to be in, according to God. Psalm 64, chapter, uh, verse 2, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords and aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Okay, the wicked person, the opposite person of a righteous one, has these secret devised plots, right? And their words are like, excuse me, like swords. Well, what do swords do? They wound, right? Sometimes fatally, right? And arrows, wound, they don't give life, they take it. And so our words, on one hand, can be wise and make the world more just, or they can be oppressive, hurtful, wounding things that actually do violence against God's shalom and his His peace. So on one hand, our, our words can be just, helping the world be as it ought to be. On the other hand, we can ambush people, we can hurt them. Then, then you get to Proverbs. This is this ancient collection of Israel's wisdom, and it contains a great deal of words about words. Let's start with Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, uh, this is just the beginning of the sampling here. Proverbs 10. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking. This is a warning for preachers. All right. <clears throat> All right. So, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. That might mean that I'm making everybody else sin by hating me. If I continue to say, okay, so words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, and the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. And so when we let our words come flooding out of our mouths without restraint, we are never more susceptible to sin. Ever notice that? It's like... I'm not really paying attention to the effect of my words. It can really damage things. This is good advice. So many conversations where I think I've had like this out-of-body experience where you're like, Matt, stop talking. You know, you ever have that moment where you think, I'm trying to get out of this awkward experience, and so I just keep talking, and it just keeps getting worse? That's That's what this is about, right? And so generosity with our words is really not about the amount of words, it is really about the force of our words, the content of our words, and where our words are going. And, and it says this, too, that righteous lips feed many. In other words, righteous words are intended to be substantial, right? to, to actually bring significance and substance. Do you have conversations that matter? Do you have conversations that really go somewhere of depth and substance? Or is it just kind of like news, weather, entertainment, sports, just kind of joking around? Or do we really have substantial conversations? Because the lips of the righteous feed many. It means it, it really provides sustenance to the soul. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Verse 25, same chapter. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. In other words, 
our words have the power to bring healing. Ever experienced that? Somebody just spoke a word of truth and value into your life, and it, it unlocked some healing for you. Right? It, it gladdens those who are anxious. Are you getting the picture that your words have power? They have incredible power to bring healing and to bring wounds. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes in a conflict, anger can escalate, right? Based on what we say, like if you're fighting me, I'm going to fight back. And boy, a, a, a soft word turns away wrath. And we actually have an opportunity to disarm conflict with how we speak. Then finally, Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I mean, imagine the, the best, sweetest, or most savory dessert you can imagine. The thing you just most desire to have. This is just the greatest dessert. And our words, when they're filled with grace, are the relational equivalent to tasting the sweetest thing you can imagine. Gracious words are this good gift for the whole person. And it's this idea of grace that I want to turn our attention to in our, in our notes, that our words are best when they offer grace. And scripture calls us to utter grace-filled words. Now, grace is often misunderstood to just mean tolerance, right? That, that if I'm gracious, I'm just going to tolerate obnoxious behavior and not say a word. But grace is fundamentally about help, right? Not just passivity. It's about help. And when God describes himself in Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious... He is saying, I'm the Lord, I have a name, I want to relate, I care and I help. Compassion is I care, grace is I help. And that's, what, that's what's at the core of what our words are supposed to do. That's how words can be generous. And in fact, Genesis 33 uh, uses the same word here as gracious, except this time um, it's used to describe God's gift, that God has gifted me something generously. And in Psalm 37, 21, the same word again, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. So gracious is also the same idea as generosity. The idea here is really simple, okay? Get this this morning, right? That we are intended to partner with God, to use the power of words to help bring about wisdom and justice and healing and right relations and it happens by using grace-filled generosity with our words, okay? So if you fast forward to the New Testament, you get the same idea as it's been echoing all throughout Scripture, and it lands in Ephesians 4.29. And since we've been in Ephesians for four months, I'm sure all of you have this book memorized. Um, just kidding. If you're new here and you're like, these people memorize whole books, about, I need to find a new church. Just, I'm just kidding. All right, so... This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. He's just told his readers to put on the new self created after the image or likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then he describes what they should do if they're going to put on that new creation that results from trusting in Christ and the gift of the Spirit in their lives where God enables us to live righteously. He says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, so if you want to be a person who stewards one of the greatest resources that God has given you, if you want to steward it wisely, if you want to live with this resource in a generous way, then you have to submit what you say to the, the Ephesians test. Right? This is 
This is very simple. It's not complicated. It's difficult, though. And we ask ourselves, am I saying something that builds this person up? Or is this going to tear him down? And we ask the question, am I saying something that fits the moment? Is it appropriate for now or not? And am I saying something that gives grace to everyone who hears? Does it actually communicate God's grace? And when the answer is yes to all three of them, then you're probably on to something good. Okay? Now let's break this down a little bit more. Let's take a look at each element and understand what generous words do or what generous words are based on Ephesians 4.29. All right, to begin with, words are, that are generous are careful not to corrupt. Okay? This is the first thing here. Generous words are uncorrupting. And the idea of no corrupting talk in Ephesians 4, it comes from the word picture of rotten fish. Okay? So like, a cor- like corrupt, this word for corrupt has to do the, with this word picture of either like a dead, stinky, rotten tree or a dead, stinky, rotten fish. Okay? That's a corrupt thing. Right? And so a corrupt dead fish, I mean, that's like a host of all kinds of smells and bacteria and it's gross and... And he's saying your language can function like that, right? How you treat the people in your life with your words can be like this dead fish that just stinks and is worse than useless, right? And so don't use corrupt language. And so this involves abusive language or vulgar language or slanderous language or things that are intended to hurt others. One of the things I do when I, I counsel couples for premarital counseling is every time when we get to the conflict conversation on how do you do conflict, uh, I always try to help them set up ground rules. Right? I'm like, first, you need to get clue in on the fact that you will have conflict. Secondly, you need to have ground rules for what you're going to do with it. Right? So it, if I, we just say anything goes and we can say what we feel, what's going to happen? It's going to corrupt the relationship. You're going to say things that maybe you feel in the moment, but you don't really agree with. And, and so try not to say things like, you always, or you never, because it's probably not true. And try to say things from like a me standpoint, like you, uh, instead of saying you make me feel, say I feel like, right? And so you don't blame them, and on and on and on. And so you try to help people say, I have a standard for your language and submit to it. Otherwise, you're going to end up corrupting the relationship. The next bit here is, this is going back to Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so, if our words are going to be generous, they've got to be truthful too. Okay? When you think of grace, oftentimes we think of just um, an exclusion of truth. Like we just kind of let things go, sweep it under the rug. But grace, biblically, always involves truth. Right? The gospel of God's grace comes to us first with a message of judgment, right? That there is something wrong here, but God wants to fix it, right? And so grace actually creates the conditions where truth can be received. Grace, grace creates the conditions where I can hear truth without being afraid of getting clobbered, right? And so we actually need both to relate in healthy ways, right? We're not actually being authentic with people if we're not being truthful, We can't actually generously build people up if we're not using truth. Inside, we actually all want truth. We just want, we're afraid of truth that's not packaged with grace. And this is how Jesus comes to us. John says, 
that Jesus, right, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen Him, right? The glory of the of the Father, full of grace and truth. You, you can't have one without the other. Grace and truth. And when we distort the truth with our words, we compromise the integrity of our relationships. Let me, let me illustrate this for a second. How many of you would get on an airplane and you knew the engineers had compromised the truth of its maximum occupancy? Right? They had compromised the truth of just how much fuel it could carry. Right? It compromises the truth a little bit on its altitude uh, ceiling or its maximum speed. You would be like, there is no way on earth I'm getting on that airplane because I have no clue right, how much weight this can hold. What if this thing falls apart the moment it gets off the ground? And why on earth would we assume people would want to be in relationships where truth is compromised? Right? Right? Where we don't really know what we're dealing with in the other we actually want relationships of truth. And, and so the other piece about truthful words is that they create the conditions where we can actually experience love. And here's what I mean. We oftentimes hide from truth because we don't, we're afraid, right? We're afraid of what that truth might mean. But if, here's the flip side. If we cut ourselves off from truth, we're actually cutting ourselves off from authentic love. And here's, what, here's how this works, right? In Christian communities, if we just put on a mask and we pretend things are fine and we're like, yeah, this is just who I am, like I'm this perfect Christian, right? Then, then what we're doing is we're driving a wedge in between what people know of us and what we know of us. And the result is tremendous insecurity and shallow relationships. But when people really know us for who we are and they love us, how powerful is that? Right? So why would you want to cut yourself off from the oxygen you actually need to thrive? Truth helps you get there. All right? Now, it's one thing to have uncorrupt speech it's a, 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 and truthful speech, but if that's all you have, it's not very helpful. Right? Because oftentimes truth without grace hurts. So the next bit here that we get from Ephesians 4.29 is that our words are meant to be helpful. There's a lot of times where we have truth for people, and if we speak it, sometimes it just does damage rather than good. So helpful words have two parts. One, they build people up, and the second thing is they fit the moment. They build people up and they fit the moment, right? And so if it's good for building people up, what's the goal of what we're building? How, how do you want to be built up? Where are you headed? Ephesians says that the goal of every person who's trusted in Christ is to become like Christ, in our character, in our thinking, in our affections, in our actions. And so to be built up means to grow up into Christ-likeness. And so what we say needs to help people get there, right? What people say to us should help us get there, not thwart us. And we get built up in all kinds of ways, don't we? We need to be built up, uh, at least here's a few ways that I think that we need to be built up. We need to be built up with encouragement, this is an example from scripture. Joshua is about to come into the land. He is scared and God says, guess what? I'm with you. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. We need to tell people that all the time. God's with you. His presence is with you through his spirit and he loves you and he's for you. Which leads to being built up by affirmation. Hey, you're making a difference in my life. Hey, you mean a lot to me. And here's, let me tell you how and why. Um, we need to be built up by vision. Like, what could your life be? Think about the way Jesus interacts with Peter. Beginning of the Gospel of John. He says, hey, 
you are Simon, you will be Cephas. I love it. Jesus builds him up with vision. Here's who you are and here's where you're headed. Here's what I see for you. Right? You're just you're a fisherman guy, but you're going to be a rock. Right? Wow, how amazing is that? We also need to be built up by correction. I just read Revelation this week, and there's these seven letters to seven churches where Jesus speaks a word of affirmation on one hand and says, hey, you know what? I see what you're doing. I see your works. I see your faithfulness. I see how it's going. Great job. I've got this, I've got this against you, though. <laughs> you know? you've, you've forgotten your first love, or you've, you've bought into the lies of such and such. right? And so hey, to build up still involves correction. And of course, we need to be heard too, right? To be built up means we need people in our lives who are saying, tell me more about that, and then they listen. Now, the second part of helpful words is not only that it builds up, but that it fits the moment, that it's timely, that it fits the occasion. Now, a timely word or a fitting word is sensitive to the moment. A, fitting, a person who's speaking fitting words is aware of when they are, right? That there's times not to talk. That there's times not to bring certain things up. And fitting words ask the question, is it appropriate? Is it timely? Ultimately, this person is asking, what will help this person get what they need, rather than what will help me get what I want? Got it? That is a big difference. And that's how you know whether you're fitting the moment. One is seeking to understand the moment. The other one is seeking to be understood. And sometimes we have this habit... I've noticed the older we grow, sometimes we have this habit, don't we, where we stop caring about how fitting the moment is. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's not. And the older we get, the more experienced we are, the more right we think we are. And so we begin to feel the freedom to correct other people right, by our great wisdom. <laughs> and we, and, and we, we offer advice that's really not being asked for. And, uh, you know, this is a great example of words not fitting the occasion, right? Because fitting the occasion also means that the words fit the relationship. On one hand, it has to do with time. When is this happening, right? On the other hand, it has to do with people and relationships and who is this conversation happening with. You see, um, frankly, you know, there are things you might love to say, right? But those things just aren't welcome in the relationship because there isn't a relationship. It actually takes a relationship with a person to know whether or not your words are fitting, to know whether or not it'll be heard well and received or whether or not it's just going to be one more person that's just kind of a jerk in their life. And so maybe you have a critique of someone that hasn't invited you to give constructive criticism. And instead of correcting them, Right? Encourage them. Instead of saying, hey, here's how the worship service should go. <laughs> or, hey, here's what everybody in my household needs to be doing. Or whatever your correction might be. Start with affirmation. Start by building a relationship. Otherwise, your correction, instead of being constructive, will just be destructive. It won't be heard. Affirm something. Begin there and say, hey, you know what I appreciate about what you offer? in this workplace environment. Hey, you know what I appreciate about what you offer in our community here at church? Start there. Start with appreciation. If you can't find that, look longer. Wait patient. Try harder. You'll find it. Okay? And if you haven't, then just don't talk. Okay. So there you go. That's how that works. Yeah. 
The next thing that Paul says, though, about our words is something we've already touched on, but we need to go further into, and that is that words are meant to be grace-filled. So Paul says they need to be uncorrupt, truthful, helpful, they build up and they're timely, right? They fit the moment and they fit the relationship, but you know what? They need to be full of grace so that everybody who hears experiences grace. And this simply means that I'm not going to use my words to put you down or to hold something over you. Okay, that I, I'm going to invite you to be new in this moment, right? And to be freed. And grace-filled words are more about chances and new chances and the invitation to more relationship. And grace-filled words are words that they might not even be necessary, but they go the extra mile to bless someone, right? My, my wife doesn't have to write me a card to say, I love you and I really appreciate the kind of husband and father you are. She doesn't have to do that at all. But if she does that, what does that do for me? Right? That encourages me, right? That, that goes the extra mile. And, 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 and when she does, it makes a huge difference. And when we're generous in our speech, we'll say more than is required. A grace-filled word says more than what's required. It's not obligated. It's free, and it offers favor without being earned. Just seeks to be a blessing. This happened to me a few months ago. I was probably I was pretty discouraged about something regarding ministry, and I got this, like unbeknownst to this couple, they just wrote this amazing note just saying what God was doing in their lives, and they appreciated a couple things, and just you know what, it meant the world to me because it was such a grace-filled word. There was no obligation for them to say it, and yet it was just such a this is what God's doing, and we're thankful, and it just meant everything. Dads in the room. You guys have the power to bless your kids and the power to frustrate them too and knock them down. Do you guys say more than is necessary in order to build them up, in in order to bless them and add value to who they are? Or do you just kind of assume they know how you feel? Because let me tell you, you cannot assume that at all. Right? We, we have this power as parents to offer encouragement and validation and affirmation and value to our kids. And, and what you have to say to them that offers those things is more important than your kids will ever tell you. Right? And, and maybe you didn't have a great example of a father. Moms, maybe you didn't have a great example of a mother. But guess what? We have the ultimate example of the true parent in our Heavenly Father. And he is generous with his words, isn't he? He shows us truth and grace abundantly. So, you know, I I pick on dads especially because I think sometimes it's more intuitive for moms. And and, and I think in our culture, dads have often done a bad job, and so we need a little extra help sometimes. So make a commitment to affirm the things in your kids that reflect Christ. Make a commitment to come alongside them and tell them the things you love about them regularly because guess what? People are leaky. Have you ever noticed that? We leak the love and value that we need. Because you could say it one moment and the next day you just get knocked down by the way life is in a fallen, broken world. Right? And so what do we need? We need a consistent affirmation of value. And if they don't hear it from you, guess what? They're going to go soak it up from someone else and somewhere else. And you have zero control of where your kids go and find that. But you do have control of what you say. So you're going to be generous in your words, offer grace-filled, more-than-necessary words to bless your kids. 
This is the same for moms too. We need that. So make a, make a commitment with your spouse if you have one and, and pray together about the things you want to validate in your kids. But generosity with our words isn't just something we do at home. It's something we do everywhere we go, right? And so if you're a boss at work, if you have people who report to you, what kind of words do you use? Do you keep people in their place? Or do you invite them to excellence in a way that validates who they are? Do you, do you actually bless them? Or employees, how do we talk about our bosses? Right? Do we join in with the complaints and the jokes? Or do we offer something gracious in the way we speak about people who aren't there? You see... This is incredibly important. Or what about people who have jobs in like the service field? Uh, Does the gas attendant or the waiter get treated with the same dignity that you want with words? I mean, it might be your waiter's job to remember what you ordered, but guess what? It's your job to treat them with grace, not grief, when they forget what you ordered. Okay? There's no reason that any Christian should be using words less than gracious with any person. So Christ followers are are really called to go out of their way to include and bless and affirm and forgive and encourage every person they come in contact with. Now, there's one more dimension that has to be mentioned here about gracious or generous words. And that comes from Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, Paul says, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, generous words are apologetic. Okay, now, do I mean that gracious words mean we walk around saying I'm sorry all the time? No, actually, this comes from this Latin idea of apologia, which is a reasoned defense of the faith. That our words are intended to make a case for Christ's glory rather than a case against it. And what Paul is saying here is that we are called to walk in wisdom with the people around us who don't know Christ. And we do that with gracious words. And he uses the metaphor of seasoned with salt. In other words, they bring out the God flavors of the world and of their lives. They they point to the goodness of God and they bring out the dimensions of God. You ever have one of those, just like, palm-to-face moments where you hear Christians talking in public loudly in less than gracious ways, and they're complaining about politics or immigration or the homosexuals. Absolutely inappropriate. It's not wise toward outsiders, and guess what? It's not gracious. Because the gracious God we serve died for everyone. Across the political spectrum, across the sexual spectrum, and he calls all of us to relationship with him, to learn righteousness, to grow in right relations with God, others, self, and all creation. And our words are vehicles to point to Jesus. And that's the point of the whole message, in fact, that our words are intended to be vehicles for knowing Jesus, the one who is life and offers life to everyone. And so... This is actually grounded in this idea that the only way we are able to do to speak words, to be empowered to give generous words to others is to feed on and, and be in communion with the living word. 
John 1 describes Jesus as the Word, the Word of God, the self-revelation of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? He was, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind, humanity. Jesus, the living word. See, he's the point of the written word, and he should be the point of our spoken words and our written words. That he is the be-all and end-all, and he became flesh, he became known. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen him, there his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the living word. Jesus is, Jesus is the revelation of God. I love Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke right, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know him today? Are you in communion with the living word, the perfect uh, uh, revelation of who God is? Because when you are, when you embrace him for what he is and what he's done, he transforms you. He wants, he makes you generous, right? Not only with your stuff, but with what you say, right? That his grace and his truth have come to save you and bring you into fellowship with him. And so, as he makes purifications for our sins on the cross, we recognize that God is utterly generous to us. We who have been utterly rebellious toward him. And when you receive him for who he is, he changes the way you talk because guess what? You at one point were more wicked than you ever dared imagine and yet you're now, because of Christ, more valued, loved, and accepted than you ever dared hope because now you know God. You know him for who he is because you know the living word and you want to make him known. And we get a chance this, this morning to celebrate that, to kind of just focus in on the generosity of God toward us and the living word who became flesh that we actually commune with with bread and juice, these tangible elements that remind us of the tangible, generous love of God. And we believe that Christ meets us at the table as we trust in faith that he is who he says and he's done what he's done. We need to pray and approach the table today with thankfulness for his generosity. Pray with me. Lord, we believe in you today. We want to embrace your message of grace and truth. We want to receive afresh the, the word that our, our sins, our filth, our brokenness is fixed and healed and cleansed and dealt with by the cross of Christ. And we trust in that today. We believe that on our own we're estranged from you by our choices, what we love, what we pursue. And we also believe that your grace pursues us. We want to be in relationship with you to trust that your cross deals fully and finally for our sins. And we trust that you make us new creations today to be in relationship with you, to partner with you in the work of generosity for your sake, even with our words. Thank you for the living word today. In Christ's name. Amen.